Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. My name is Keisha, and I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing with your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in this exciting industry. We thank everyone in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy industry, policy or industry grievances, or asking about Arroya pricing, although you are always welcome to book a demo, and we would love to talk more with you about that. Feel free to type your questions at any time in the chat. If your question is selected, we'll have you unmute yourself and go ahead and ask away. Um, plus, as a special treat, we're going to send an Arroya hat to anyone who asks a question for the first time during today's live session, and we are limiting that to U.S. residents and one hat per household. Jason and Seth, hello. Are you guys ready for our first question? Sure are. Excellent. And this is a very good one. This gets right to the meat of it. JG wants to know, can you describe a time when Arroyo's sensors and or alert system saved a client's harvest? I can, absolutely. Um, and obviously there's a couple parameters that we can alert upon to, to help people keep things in check. And uh, obviously any HVAC parameters are uh, nice to have a, a backup on. And then even more importantly sometimes is uh, irrigation parameters, making sure that we don't have valves shutting down and um, solenoids failing. Uh, every once in a while you'll catch a clogged emitter, less and less all the time now that people are doing a, a good job staying away from organics in their, um, in their pressure compensated emitting systems. And the uh, specific one I'm thinking about, uh, we had a client and he, uh, he was doing some, uh, some irrigation modifications on his injection system uh, and ended up he was uh, flying out. Um, I was actually meeting with him later that day uh, off-site for a while. And uh, it just happens that um, even as a really well-experienced cultivator and someone that spends quite a bit of time uh, working with irrigation systems, he forgot to turn the, the master, the manual master valve back on. Uh, and so uh, I think it was briefly after he landed, he got a, an alert saying that the water content was going lower than, uh, than it should for that day. And so uh, he was able to, to, to call up a friend back home and get that uh, valve turned back on. And it, uh, you know, it saved him six figures on a crop there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, kind of on a different note, I was talking to someone just this morning who's able to identify some problems with their wireless network on site because their troll master wasn't able to communicate with the internet from its location. And the way they found that out was they got an alert that said, hey, you, uh, you missed the last like four irrigations yesterday, essentially. Your water content dipped below where it should have been last night. And then they got there and that kicked off a hole while the pumps were working, you know. The usual checklist then go down to, oh, this is not responding on my phone app. I'm trying to tell it to water. Okay. It wasn't a complicated problem, but Arroya tipped them off and they got right on it rather than going a whole day without irrigating, for instance. And like Jason said, that'll save you a lot of money in this game. Sometimes we talk with people and they actually justify the, the cost of Arroya based on a few crops they've lost in the past. And uh, I mean, it's pretty realistic that it's a safeguard for protecting your investment all that time into trying to grow, uh, trying to produce a really, really healthy 
plant uh, can be lost. Just, just a, a simple wire disconnection, Wi-Fi issues, human error uh, happens to even the best of us. And so um, having a little bit of a backup is well worth the time, energy, and money to, to get a system like Aurora in place. Absolutely. I can tell you a great example of a time where I didn't have it and trusted someone to turn the light timer back off after, back on after they sprayed. So we didn't know for about a week that we only had, you know, 12 hours of light in our veg bay in the greenhouse rather than the 18 we we're hoping for because no one's there after the lights turn on because it gets hot. No one wants to work in the veg bay then. Well, a few weeks later, we're dealing with a bunch of pre-flowered moms and a couple whole rounds of really not quality clones. And uh, if we had a system like Arroyo at the time, it would have saved us a you know, month's worth of headache for uh, what, a two-minute mistake that someone made when they just didn't flip a switch walking out of the room. Yep. Don't underestimate the power of removing that guesswork, right? Exactly. Redundancy is a beautiful thing sometimes. Yep. Awesome. I'll ask our next question. We had a couple people just join us here. Um, welcome to Office Hours. If you have any questions, feel free to type them in the chat. We would love to address your questions live in real time. So let me move on to the next question here. This one comes from the Chemical Grower, also submitted through Instagram. They want to know what makes Terrace 12 better than other soil probes? Yeah, uh, Terrace 12 is based on 30 plus years of experience that Meter Group has developing sensors for environmental biophysics, for substrate analysis. Uh, we've got a lot of expertise based on it. And so there, there's specific technology. Uh, it is a capacitance-based sensor. And we have spent a ton of energy with... Uh, with other um, partners where, you know, we OEM manufacture for a couple other companies that make similar devices and uh, they've gone through extraordinarily rigor rigorous testing. And so it, uh, it's been optimized for accuracy at some of the higher ECs, which uh, some of the um, TDR sensors definitely struggle at doing. And uh, I, I think it shows, I mean, it's proven in the data. We, we run some TDRs from competitors right next to our own Terras 12s here in, in our test systems. And uh, it doesn't take long to see that what we should be making decisions based on is uh, is a little bit more accurate technology. And one of the things that you know we're excited about in the future as well as the energy that we spend with that expertise, uh, making the next device. And so hopefully here um, we'll have a, another system that's coming out as far as substrate sensors that uh, is even going to be a, a little bit better. I know for me, on top of everything that Jason said, it was using some of these same sensors outside of cannabis applications before Meter was involved in this and seeing that I could take one of these sensors and throw it on a remote station way out in the middle of nowhere and it'll last a long time and still give me a, re a reliable reading. You know, that's to me, that's huge. If you're doing work at different sites, <clears throat> you've got sensors scattered all around. You don't want to spend time driving places just to calibrate a sensor because you're like, oh, it read funny today. Um, and I have yet to have one be unreliable in the reading. I haven't found one that's actually off yet, unless, you know, someone physically beat it with a hammer or something. And even then, they still read sometimes. Yeah. And probably another thing is, um, by bulk numbers, Meter Group is manufactured to date a little over 750,000 uh, soil and substrate sensors. So it's, it's given us a lot of opportunity to, to refine, improve, and, and build the best product that's available in the market. 
Awesome. Um, Jason, earlier you mentioned uh, the competitive landscape a little bit. Um, I have a question here from Randy Lyon who asked, does Arroyo make a smart valve controller to pair with Terra sensor similar to Growlink? Uh, so currently we do not offer uh, a direct control uh, module for a substrate sensor. Uh, and I'll kind of break this into two things. One of the projects that we are working on, we're very close to releasing. Um, I think our QA on our open sprinkler integration should be done tomorrow. Uh, at that point, uh, Scott and I will be doing some internal beta testing on it, making sure that, uh, you know, that we run across any bugs that we see before we do um, beta testing with development partners. So after, after um, you know, two or three months, we, we plan to get that on the market and release it widespread. But uh, as with anything in control, uh, we want to do absolute due diligence put it through the rigorous tests uh, internally and we're really excited about it basically it's abstracting the open sprinkler interface to be working right out of Arroyo. some of the information that we're going to ask is the substrate volume that you're feeding into and the drip rate and so most all that math is pretty simple to do outside of a system but uh, in Arroyo, it's going to start tracking that in comparison to your irrigation events so obviously we look at um, changes as a percent of volumetric water content in regards to the substrate size. And that's exactly what uh, people use to make irrigation decisions as well. Uh, on top of that, anyone that's familiar with the Arroyo system is used to using recipes. So breaking down your flower cycles into smaller manageable chunks where you have specified desired target parameters, uh, desired irrigation schedules that might be a little bit different. And we're going to allow clients to build irrigation recipes or templates that align with each of those schedules so that you're not in there making multiple changes to um, valve configurations or irrigation timing uh, when you go to switch from, say, vegetative to generative or back. Um, yeah, uh, so that's that's really kind of the, the first step where we're at, and we will be looking to optimize using some... Uh, some data scientists that we have. We've got some really cool guys that are working on uh, irrigation projects here. And when we think about automating irrigation based on a set point, you know, really what comes to mind is the fact that, hey, you might be getting a nighttime irrigation because you didn't irrigate properly yesterday. And what really needs to happen is, you know, when we, we take these irrigation vents, it when you're crop steering, it's not necessarily a real-time decision that should be made. It's basically planning out using an estimated transpiration rate from the day before and getting your shot sizes and irrigation window appropriately adjusted so your dry bags for the next day, your EC stacking or normalization occurs appropriately. And so, you know, if, if we do have it at a specific set point, let's say, you know, if we go under... 40% want to irrigate. Well, now we've got some accidental irrigations at night, which probably in some cases is actually less effective than, um, than not irrigating during that time period, letting it go slightly below that, um, that threshold and then making the appropriate decision tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Totally automating a whole irrigation schedule is very, well, let me take that back. Automating, but automating the uh, decision-making behind it is very, very difficult. That's one thing I run into a lot with people is like, okay, we've got a plan for, let's say, our first generative phase, you know, weeks one through about four, one to three, depending on the strain. 
one thing you as a cultivator have to do is watch that graph, go look at your plants, and start probably adding either more shots or increasing your shot size as your plant grows. For instance, we can't just put one schedule out and say this is going to last this whole week. That, might, that schedule might realistically only be good for two days before we have to make some minute adjustments to keep our water capacity high enough. And especially like, let's say, rock wool, when we don't want to be continually losing that field capacity. So it's really cool that it's all coming out, but I think uh, taking the grower out of the equation is not going to happen for quite a long time. It's still going to take uh, dedication and a lot of hard work on the human part to produce quality product. Yeah, so I mean, the, the steps that we're taking is to enable the best tools for those growers to make the decisions and implement the application as easy as possible. Um, so, and for from my personal standpoint, uh, you know, I come from a technology background and I love complete automation. If I trust some programming and I can th use my brain power to be thinking about something else, use my time on something else, that's absolutely fantastic. And then in this scenario, it's where, um, you know, real-time decision may not be the best for the plants. Analyzing the previous day's um, attributes, performance, trends over time is how someone can make the best decisions for tomorrow. And we are working on some some mathematical models to really kind of make a suggestion on how that irrigation should happen based on previous trends. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's all coming along. It's just, uh, it's a very big challenge, I think. That's, that's the best way I can put it. It's been a long time coming, and I think we'll be improving it for a long time too just as we learn more and we get more data about it. That's, that's how all this seems to work. Once we put something out, we now have the power to develop it to be five times what we initially thought it would be is everything I've experienced in this industry right now. What I also heard in that response is that we are learning from our Arroyo customers. So we make, we're making changes and refinements based on real time, like awareness of their needs. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And so um, I was looking at the numbers this morning and uh, out of the Arroyo database, we have, uh, I think it was a little over 26,000 um, Taros 12s that have been deployed under the Arroyo umbrella directly. Um, historically, our, our server is running well over 10 billion data points and we run some uh, data science to anonymously attribute the similarities differences uh, amongst how how all this stuff uh, operates and so really what it kind of comes down to is the you know the different sets of, of parameters in any grow situation and as we start to ask for those in the interface it's really going to allow us to kind of tailor and say hey this is the the general performance of a substrate this size in this type of environment and, and one of my one of my personal things that i'd love to try and um get some some really good prototypes and frameworks out there is thinking about uh, strain performance libraries as well on the big scale. The future is bright. It's exciting. Just a reminder to everybody who's on, we want to answer your questions. So let us know if you have anything, type it in the chat. I do have a question here from River City Growers. They want to know what is the average dry grams? Oh, I actually have a question for Jody. River City Growers, we're going to get back to you in a second. Jody, you want to go ahead and unmute yourself and, and ask your question? Sure. Sorry uh, to interrupt there. Um, my question is basically kind of con a continuation of what we were talking about uh, last week, controlling nitrogen in flower. 
And so I've been thinking about that, and I ran up across something that uh, I thought was interesting. Um, in addition to plant tissue analysis, what about uh, analysis of the sap? Uh, maybe like on a weekly basis and including that in your registration information. I think that's absolutely a good idea. The more data you have, the better. Um, I personally like the tissue analysis for making nutritional decisions because I'm looking at what's actually, you know, being uptaken and fixed in the plant. When I'm looking at sap analysis, I'm seeing a huge list of uh, carbohydrates and secondary metabolites. So over time, we can start to equate that towards like, all right, here's what we're getting on our sap analysis. Here's what the plant looks like. Here's our tissue analysis. What does this all mean? Okay, that ends with a certain chemotype, basically. We have figured out what the plant tells us when we grow it this way. And when we uh, compile more of that data and grow the plant in a slightly different way, we can see how those values would be affected and see where we can steer our decisions based on those. Um, but it just depends on what you're looking for. Tissue analysis, bang for your buck, is going to help you make uh, nutritional decisions, I think, easier. Interesting. Okay, well, that's good to know because if, you know, you're talking to someone who's trying to sell you SAP analysis, of course, mm -hmm. they're going to tell you that they're the best game in town and tissue analysis is the old way and it doesn't yield any useful information, et cetera. So it's, it's always good to hear the opinion of someone who actually has experience with it. Thanks. Yeah, I personally, the more data you can get, uh, the better. Um, but at the end of the day, Everyone in production right now has a production budget and a budget for tools and uh, research. And unfortunately, everything costs money. So if you're having to choose, I would go with the tissue analysis. If you can, you know, have your cake and eat it too. As many tests as you can get, you know, as long as they are, well, like the SAP test, you're still getting good data from that and it's easily repeatable. It's something you're going to be doing regularly that you can, you know, start to lean in on that data once you have it. At what interval do you think uh, doing those uh, labs would be, I mean, not that there's an unlimited budget because there isn't, but if there was, at what interval would you do that? I mean, do you think weekly is adequate? I think for, yeah, most commercial cultivators, weekly is pretty well adequate. I mean, in a, again, in a perfect world, you'd have a lab right there <laughs> in-house and you'd go cut a part of a leaf, take it in and analyze it. Sure. You'd go take pull some sap door. and analyze it that day. But um, most of the time, weekly changes are what you're going to be making. So that's a good time to um, get that analyzed. Great. Thank you, guys, as always. Yep. Thanks for the question, man. Yeah, Jody, thanks for asking the questions. Good to see you again. Nice having you on the, on the session again. Uh, reminder, everybody's on. Be sure to type your question in the chat. We're going to get it answered for you. All right. I'm going to go back to River City Growers' question. They want to know what is the average dry grams per square foot users can expect. And I'm assuming that they are asking about Arroyo users. So they want to know what is the average dry grams per square foot they can expect. Um, I, I, we don't really like to shoot for a number. We like to talk about um, performance improvements on that because the, the range of growers that I've worked with, I've gone into places that are, getting 15 grams per square foot and I've gone into places that are, you know, at the pretty good rate of say 70, maybe even a little bit more before they implement Arroyo. And so, um, attributing an average to that 
really doesn't give us much information on the industry. Um, there's you know so many variables in between there as far as some people are running in a hoop house, some people are running indoor, and uh, you know maybe if, if we break break it down uh, a little bit farther, we could think about averages there. But um, but yeah, you know as far as a improvement, you know if, if you're not getting ten percent, then um, you need to spend some more time with our client success managers and uh, really attribute what in the system can make the biggest advantages for data-driven growing. Um, uh, usually there's something even the best growers can absolutely improve based on looking at the data, reading the trends, tailoring in their consistencies and uniformities across the crops. And so, yeah, it, you know, we do, um, we do want to help you guys as much as possible. Uh, I don't think I've ran into anybody that uh, saw a decrease because they were making better decisions from the data. Not if they were making good decisions based on the data. <laughs> I have seen people make the wrong decision. That will happen, but that's, you know, that's a that's a personal problem on their part. Um, and I yeah. think, I mean, to that point, that's one of the reasons that um, Arroyo as a group and a company has spent so much energy putting this education out here. That's why we spend this time every week trying to get on the hot topics. What are things that most people can do to, to get them pointed in the right, right direction? That's you know, why we go uh, build out our resource pages on the uh, Arroyo website. And it's why we spend time with our clients uh, all the time, getting as much information to them as we can, whether it be in the, personal client success meetings, uh, whether it be unpublished material. Yeah, Turp Total Farms, you just posted a comment. You want to speak to it? Nice. Oh, yeah. No, that's what we like to see. Um, I was going to say, honestly, for numbers, that 40 to 80 range is where a lot of people come in, maybe down close to 30. And then typically we try to go up from there. Really what Arroyo brings to the table, though, is looking at that 80 figuring out everything that happened to get that and then pinpointing where you can make improvements. Because if you're at 80, you're already, you're already killing it pretty good. I mean, you're doing a dang good job, but looking at your facility, we might be able to fine tune it and get you those extra few grams here or there that each round, little improvement, little improvement adds up. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. It kind of reminded me of it, an anecdote working with a, with a client there and, um, Northern California and uh, coming in, he's fantastically experienced grower, you know, been growing for 30 plus years. He's got his operation pretty well dialed in. And um, as it is, so many growers like to talk about their best yielding um, rather than what they get across, say, five or, or 10 harvest group averages. And um, we're always really proud of what we hit as human beings. We want to talk about what we do best. And um, for him, it wasn't necessarily. Uh, a top number increase for his uh, his yield weight per grams per square foot per um, harvest group. But what happened was he was able to bring up all of his harvest groups pretty close to that level. And so when he when he looks at the you know the total amount of improvement, it doesn't come from just hey we made twenty percent more last harvest group. It comes down to saying hey we made twenty percent more over the last ten harvest groups. Yep, consistently. And now we can take that to our marketing people and say, hey, we have a believable number to give you every month for what you're going to have to sell. 
that's that's the ultimate end there is like that consistency. I mean, how much money can your business lose if you can't accurately plan your product output? You know, if it's all over the place every month, that that introduces a pretty big variable. So even just stabilizing that and having a slight upward trend can make a huge difference in uh, your cash flow at the end of the day. Absolutely. When I was cultivating, I think it was that was the most important thing I did uh, was deliver projectable numbers um, based on historic yields. So I break things down by what cultivars are yielding what um, what weight per plant. I ask the sales teams what how what do you want on the shelf in six months, and uh, really get started on it with your propagation teams. It's going to make things quite a bit easier. You can reduce um, clone waste. Uh, you know, track your track your survival rates through clones, or if you are selective cloning, um, say, hey, we want to we only want to waste the the bottom ten percent of extra clones. Uh, so that kind of comes down to an operational standpoint, you know, way, way beyond just the cultivation. Everybody's lives can be easier if we think about making it a smoother transition saying, well, we know how to get that 600 pounds of OG Kush. We need to grow this many plants with a, with a little bit of a buffer for that uh, survival rate or, or uh, that selective cloning procedure and don't grow more than that grow the right stuff that your sales team is going to utilize. Yep. And using data-driven decisions, you can capture that consistency to a point where you can build that brand reliability. I think that everyone's looking for right now because I don't know about you, Jason, but if I go to the store and I get something that's particularly not good, I remember that label. Like I'm not going to buy that one again if I get burned once. And that might not be a good representation of the product those people are capable of putting out. You know, in fact, most of the time it probably isn't. You probably did get a fluke, but that's kind of how marketing goes and <laughs> how people think about a product when they walk into a store and they have, you know, depending where you're at, 40, 60, 100 choices, you know, or <laughs> it's, that's the way the, the market's becoming. It's, uh, it's getting competitive out there. Um, as the person who lives in California, I can absolutely vouch for that statement. I mean... As a consumer, it's a nice problem to have, <laughs> right? Uh, but it's it's a lot. It's crowded. It's crowded out there. Um, okay, so I have another question here that we got uh, through Instagram. And just a reminder: anybody who's on with us today, feel free to type your question in the chat. Ar asked about if I haven't if I experience any tech issues with my sensors or the Arroya platform. Where do I go for help? Support dot or support dot or you can give us a call on our support line number. You can also fill out a support request form or a error form if you go to the resource center. At the bottom left of your dashboard, it's the big question mark. And uh, uh, I finally just realized this the other day because I hadn't used it on my laptop as much as my bigger screen, but you do have to scroll down inside that menu to get to the support form. Did it on my small screen. I was like, where the heck is this? Oh, okay. So, And that's, I mean... I should have said that first because it is our preferred um, way to capture information from you. We'll get uh, we'll get a screen video share uh, when you do that of your session, and so it's super easy for us, you know, without a lot of detail to see exactly what's going on, uh, what what experiences you're going through, and then we can provide um, some of the interface coding back to our software team to try and uh, try and diagnose it if it uh, if it is a, 
a bug or something um, technically that we need to, to address. Uh, and we, you know, we always encourage people to seek out answers as well on your own. You know, if, if it's just a, a question regarding how the software performs, use that resource center, watch some of the tutorials based on the area of the interface that you're working on. Uh, and you might even learn something that uh, you didn't know that, that it's capable of doing you know, aside from helping resolve any issues. Yep. And you can always reach out to your uh, client success manager, either myself or Noah, depending on your region. Um, if you're already in communication with us and you've got more hardware and software questions that, you know, like, hey, we're meeting to talk about growing, but this is only going to take five minutes. That's totally fine, too. Great. Thank you. And of course, office hours, this is a great opportunity to address any tech questions. Um, anybody's having any issues, got questions about how anything works. Um, that's what we're here for. We want to answer those for you. Um, I've got a couple of questions from Instagram. One user named HighFuelOG um, submitted a few crop steering questions. Seth and Jason, you want to get into that real quick? Sure do. All right. HighFuelOG wanted to know, when pushing temps down in later flower, do you recommend just doing so during nighttime? That's going to be a little bit strain dependent. Uh, I like to, to drop the, the temps in the day a little bit as well. Probably not quite as much as you are going to overnight. Um, usually the advantages that we can get from in, inducing that nighttime differential is one, it helps produce the anthocyanin, which is, um, which is responsible for the, the purple in color and things like raspberries and, and blueberries. And ironically, also responsible for a lot of the coloring in, in cannabis products as well. So, you know, that would be one reason. Another reason is thinking about uh, how, how assimilates are sourced and synced through the plant. So kind of working with the plant physiology uh, to induce the largest plant that we can. And so assimilates typically sync to the warmest parts of the plant. So later in flower, you do have some bud mass in there. That bud mass is more dense. It's going to retain a little bit uh, daytime heat longer than the rest of the plant. And so it's going to become a sink for assimilates, which is really want, where we want as much of the plant energy um, and, and growth chemicals to be going to during that time. Yep. Nighttime temperatures are a big way the plant knows how to move different uh, metabolites around, really. I mean, even in veg, if you ran a 24-hour veg, you might notice okay growth, but your plant does still need to sleep. That's the time that it moves carbohydrates around. Um, it's not focused on production. It's focused on storage. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, Jason, you nailed it with the anthocyanin production. One thing I have been noticing, though, is it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't seem necessary to keep your room, you know, you don't need to go 76 to 66. It lights off. You can taper that down throughout the night and not, you know, spend so much time fighting your, your HVAC system to make that happen. So as long as we get, you know, like a little over two hours down at that 10 degree overnight diff, where differential will be pretty good as far as getting that expression. And then, you know, the other thing is later in flowers, some people I've noticed have a tendency to want to run in, you know, the low 70s in the daytime as well. And really that's going down towards the bottom end of where, get, where we're getting uh, good respiration in the plant. So cellular activity starts to slow down below a certain point. That's not what we want to have happening in the daytime. We still need those plants to be active and ripening for us. There are chemical processes going on that take energy 
things move slower when it's colder. So there's a, a fine, there's a, a hard point of diminishing returns on dropping your temps later in flower. That's great. Turk Turtle Farms, you posted a comment. You want to speak to it? Do you want me to read it? We'd love to hear from you. Here's what he posted here. Um, and the root zone temp, bring that feed temp down uh, to 65, and it makes a big difference, especially if you can't bring uh, the room temps too low. Thank you for that. Yeah, you, you do always want, I mean, preferably, if you can have your tank in a room and stay at 65, that makes a big deal. You know, and even in vegetative steering early on, if you have your water going in 65 and we're going on to, you know, 10 liters of media plus on top of a slab, our little shots are not cooling that off super quick. So it is nice to go down, to go in with a little colder water so that we're not putting too cold water on the plant. And then also recognizing that, um, you know, bringing the root zone temp down is nice. But it's also something we can't totally focus on during vegetative steering just because we it's warm in the room. But I agree, bringing that down definitely helps quite a bit later in flower, especially when our temps are already approaching that at night. Along those lines, um, High Fuel OG also wanted to know, what bottom end temp, what bottom end temps do you recommend when doing that temp lowering? I, so it sounds like they want to lower. Yeah, I usually wouldn't go lower than 67. Um, I was going to say the exact same number <laughs> off the top of my head. You know, on the other hand, though, uh, I've pulled plants down here in eastern Washington in October, and it was definitely colder than 67 at night. We were, you know, covering them so they didn't get frostbite, essentially. Um, there again, optimal temperature versus what the plant can actually tolerate. There's a pretty big range. You know, so just, just like if we're talking about EC towards the end of flower, is there what we'd like to see? Yes. Uh, the difference between overfeeding and, you know, causing nutrient toxicities to your plant is that there's, again, a huge margin there. So, yeah, I mean, to me, that number comes into mind kind of on a very general spectrum. Uh, I encourage, as I say, almost every session that we do of these is take notes on your harvests. Um, strain dependent, you can really make some improvements by recognizing the preferences, the growth preferences of that plant as far as uh, how it performed the best. You know, did we get a little bit more color out of uh, our white truffles when we went to 65 at night instead of 67? Now, that's getting past the details that we can dig into here. So that that's just a very general number that, that we like to work off of as a basis while you are doing continuous improvement for, for strain performance. Yeah, and make sure your facility can do it without molding out your plants. That's the, the final piece of that puzzle. If you're going to lose plants to mold, just to try to achieve that, you know, 10 degree overnight differential, uh, it's, it's not worth it. Unless you like throwing product away, but I don't think any of us, that's no one's goal here. No, never. Uh, the third question from High Fuel OG, and you may have touched on this, but I want to go ahead and ask it directly here. When do you recommend starting those temp drops? And they say thank you. Nice. Well, thanks for the questions, man. Uh, I like to kind of just phase it into three, um, if you will. Say, you know, the, the first third of flower run very little. 
you know, so less than five degree um, temp differential. It can really just be the same temp throughout uh, night day for that first third of the harvest group cycle. So if you were a nine week cycle, first three weeks, then I like to drop about um, about a five degree differential for the second third weeks, and then say usually around a ten degree differential for the last third weeks. Great. Um, Zach is on and he had a question. Zach, you want to go ahead and unmute yourself? Hey guys, how's it going? Good. Thanks for being on here. Thanks. Appreciate it. So I got two questions for you. Um, what is the best way to clean the sensors? And the second one would be, what is your experience? Are sensors better in square pots or round pots or it doesn't matter? Yeah, and these are very applicable. Um, you can use isopropanol alcohol on the sensors. You could use, um, you know, hydrochloric acids, you know, something like a zero tall or a cleanse. Um, if, if you really need to break down um, some of the growth on there, you can soak it overnight, you know, just throw the sensor head itself, the terrace with the prongs, into, uh, you know, a shallow bucket of uh, some type of solvent. Uh, the epoxy we use is is very resistant to most any of the chemicals that are available in your facility. Um, as far as round pots versus square pots, uh, absolutely square pots. So when we talk about probably one of the biggest, um, basic, biggest issues of data variance, um, so not necessarily as accurate as it should be, is when those prongs uh, have some air showing on it. So the Terrace 12 has three prongs, and those prongs are reading the water in the air along the entire length of the prong. And so when, uh, when we're stuck into a round pot, and I guess you can't see it when I go like that like it would be, but that round pot is going to have a little bit of air typically just on the outside two prongs uh, as that flat surface is trying to uh, conform to the the um, circular that round edge and so in any type of plastic round hard pots we recommend people actually cut out a rectangle the size of the taros 12 head so that it can sit flush in there um, you can do this preferably before you even fill the pot throw a piece of tape over it if uh, if you're worried about substrate pouring out and then you can either stick the terrace 12 onto that tape which will keep it nice and secure in the, this pot or you can actually just puncture right through that tape as well so that's how we you know recommend going into round hard pots um, i personally prefer uh you know prepackaged medias um, so things like rock wool uh, really easy very consistent installation in rock wool. Um, and then uh, compressed cocoa, you know, say one, one and a half, two gallon compressed cocoa bags, uh, also a very easy installation after they've saturated up. All right, excellent, thank you. Yeah, and just to touch on that a little bit, um, you can, Zach, use just Dawn dish soap and water on your prongs if you want, just soaking in that for even a couple minutes will usually break up the salt on the prongs, I've found. but. It is always best practice to wipe them down with some type of sanitizing solution, whether that's alcohol, sanitate, some other kind of solvent, but wipe it down. Don't dunk it in a bucket. Still remember it's an expensive radio transmitter and you don't really want to ruin it by holding it underwater till the bubbles stop. It, there shouldn't be any bubbles, but I wouldn't risk it if, if I spent the money on it. <laughs> and then also um, we do typically recommend to avoid uh, abrasives 
on there. Um, it, it is a, a medical grade stainless steel, but uh, anytime that you're using abrasives, it can alter the, the surface profile uh, of that metal, which can slightly affect some of the readings that are being taken by it. Cool. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Mm -hmm. Can we add one more to this real quick? Yeah. So with the EC sensor installation, how, how would you guys suggest getting the best reading? Because sometimes with the T-traps we've drawn out, they're not getting as much water as we need to get a full reading. Gotcha. Are you running those uh, like as a runoff into your trap? Into your, you have a trap in your runoff or in your feed? Yeah, we put a trap underneath in the drain line. Gotcha. Um, so you can go with like a U-shaped trap or personally, it, this kind of sounds weird, but you can get a bucket drill a hole in the side of that bucket, run a line out of the bucket several inches deep, and then drop the probe in there. Create a, a settling basin, essentially. Yep, and then it's also easy to pull that probe out if you're ever like, wow, is it really reading that high? You can pull it out and clean it easy enough without having to drain a line. Cool, thank you. Yep. Awesome, Zach. Thank you so much for submitting your question. And um, if you can, stick around for another minute. After the broadcast ends, I definitely want to collect your info so we can send you an Avoya hat. Um, I have asked all the questions submitted so far this week. Seth and Jason, anything else you want to cover while we while we have a few more minutes? Um, anything oof. you mind? No? Not, nothing terribly really killing me this week other than I'm really excited about this open sprinkler. <laughs> we'll be testing it this week. This yeah, coming week. probably... Probably the second most fun thing that we get to do next to directly working with clients, going and seeing them, talking about, uh, you know, what we can do to help them perform better is um, working internally with our company, prototyping and understanding what we can do to help our product perform better um, based on our experience cultivating. Let's apply a product how we would would have wanted to use it when, when we were directly hands-on on a day-to-day -day basis and... Uh, get the feedback to our, to our dev teams so that we can make it as effective as possible when it hits the market. Excellent. Yeah, no, this is it. Uh, thank you guys both, Seth and Jason, as usual. Great conversation. Jody and Zach, thank you so much for your questions. Jody has a hat. Zach, stick around for just a minute. And thank you to everybody who joined us today. I mean, this is what Office Hours is about, just really being a resource for all of you. Um, do you have any questions about Arroya, how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process, and any other topic you'd like covered in a future Office Hours session, post it in the chat, shoot us an email at support.arroya at metergroup.com, or send us a DM on Instagram. We definitely want to hear from you. Uh, we record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, like, subscribe, and share, please, while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please do share them with your network and spread the word. Otherwise, we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Office Hours. Thank you all so much for coming. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks Keisha. Coming, guys. Thanks, Thanks Keisha. Sure. The questions are great. Uh, let's keep doing it. Keep them coming. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.